as you get that out and and get ready for the message today. I had something interesting I wanted to share before we uh, uh, start in. And uh, uh, some of you, uh, five, a little over five years ago, uh, my daughter Sarah and uh, her husband Andy uh, were married. And uh, I officiated that wedding, but I co-officiated it with a guy named Lee Copeland, who was their college pastor. If you ever wonder if a college pastor has an impact, certainly had an impact on them and their friends. And uh, Lee died this past week, uh, very suddenly, uh, an older gentleman, just a real quiet and godly man. And John Campbell, who was Andy's best man, uh, also attended uh, the church, uh, was at his burial yesterday and wrote these words. And I just wanted to share them because I thought it was just, it was just a great short Uh, lesson here. He wrote, Lee Copeland, a follower of Christ and humble friend of so many people, was buried today. At the graveside service in front of a hundred people wearing their Sunday best, there was a person who probably felt out of place. One of the men who helped lower the coffin into the ground was dressed in ripped jeans with a dirty t-shirt and a beard dyed pink and pink hair to match. It was quite a sight. At any other funeral, this might have been a disgrace. But this was Lee Copeland. And I smiled because instantly I saw Lee saying vividly in his own particular way, Do you now see, John? Who are you compared to God? Do not think too much of yourself. No matter what you accomplish in life, someday a redneck with pink hair will lower you into your grave. Even in death, Lee is teaching me. Thankful for that moment. I thought that was pretty awesome. Who are you compared to God? Because we're going to look at Moses today, and very much that's the message that is being given to Moses and through Moses to the rest of us. Who are you compared to God? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to read here from God's Word to encourage you to have this open, encourage you to bring your Bibles. I know some of you bring your favorite device. Um, but I always encourage you to bring a real a Bible, but uh, pretty much anything will do that gets you to read God's Word. And so it's even there in your uh, outline. But let's uh, listen carefully as this is the Word of God. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. The word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. You teach us much about yourself and about your word and about the role of your prophet Moses. You teach us about how you redeem your people and how you use weak and doubting servants to accomplish your purposes. From all this, teach us more about you. Move us to love and sing and wonder. Help us to appreciate the beauty of the gospel and the glory of your plan of redemption. Open our eyes to see this truth that you have for us in this, your word. Remind us, who are we compared to God? Remind us that we need the glory of the Lord. We need Jesus. We need a deliverer, a redeemer, a savior. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. The beginning of this passage in verse 10 of our text today, we read this phrase, I am slow of speech and of tongue. And when I read that, I was reminded of the wonderful film, The King's Speech, starring Colin Firth in an Oscar-winning role. The King's Speech tells the story of Albert Frederick Arthur George, the man who eventually becomes King George VI of England. The movie begins with Prince Albert, as he's known, the Duke of York, and second son to King George V. And the movie begins with him stammering through a speech at the 1925 British Empire Exhibition at Wembley Stadium. And it's a horrifying ordeal. And it's being broadcast by radio worldwide. And the speech is a disaster. Prince Albert's stammering speech visibly unsettles the thousands of listeners in the audience. And the Duke has just given up hope for a cure. But his wife, Elizabeth, who we knew of as the Queen Mother, uh, she persuades him to see Lionel Logue, this unorthodox Australian speech therapist in London. And during their first session, Logue breaches royal etiquette by referring to the prince as Bertie, a name that's only used by his family. And uh, he doesn't think this is such a great idea. He's more used to your royal highness. Uh, he's much more comfortable with that. And this guy, this commoner, says, no, we're going to be on a first-name basis. I'm going to call you Bertie. You call me Lionel. And he uh, decides this is not such a great idea. It's completely unsuitable, and he's going to leave. And so as he gets up, Logue bets him a shilling, which I thought was kind of odd. He's the Duke of York, you know, and he's betting this guy a shilling. You know, it's like betting a quarter. Um, that the Duke can recite Hamlet's to be or not to be soliloquy without any problems at all while listening to The Marriage of Figaro on headphones. And so he makes this bet. And so he takes him up on it, and Logue records his performance on this old gramophone record and convinced that he has just stammered throughout. Prince Albert leaves in anger. He's declaring his condition hopeless, and he dismisses Logue and as he goes out the door, Logue offers him the recording as a keepsake. 
So he goes uh, back to the palace, and after King George V, his father, makes his 1934 Christmas address, so a period of time has now gone by, he explains to his son the importance of broadcasting to a modern monarchy. And King George demands that Albert train himself by reading his father's speech, as if he was going to give the speech himself. And it's another disaster. He makes this agonizing attempt uh, to do so, but his stuttering is overwhelming. It's painful. It's clearly an emotionally painful moment. It's painful to watch. And his father is just disgusted and enraged, and he gives up, not just on his son speaking, but on his son. And so later, it's by himself, Logue, or, uh, the Duke takes out Logue's recording from the one session that he had with him. And he plays it, and he hears himself unhesitatingly reciting Shakespeare. So he decides to return to see Lionel Logue again. And Logue focuses primarily on physical exercises, not speech therapy as much. And he teaches him muscle relaxation and breath control techniques, and, but consistently, sort of persistently, uh, probing at what are the psychological roots of his stutter. And the Duke eventually reveals uh, the pressure of his childhood from having this domineering father who just happened to be king in an incredibly abusive nanny. And these two men build a relationship. Well, in January of 1936, King George V dies. And Albert's older brother, named David, ascends the thrones and becomes King Edward VIII. You know, they all had like four or five names, so they got to pick when they became king. And he becomes King Edward VIII, but promptly causes a national crisis uh, by his determination to an marry uh, an American woman who was in the process of getting a divorce, this American divorcee. And um, that's not going to go over so well as the king is the head of the Church of England. And so King Edward abdicates to marry Wallace Simpson. And then uh, Albert accedes to the thrones, multiple, uh, as King George VI. And now he's king. He has to speak to the people. And so during his preparation for the coronation at Westminster Abbey, he calls Logue to come and help him out. And they discover that Logue has no certification. He has no formal training. And now that he's king, they sort of do the background check thing they didn't do earlier, and they say, this guy's not even a speech therapist. He's not been to medical school. He hasn't done any of this stuff. And uh, so he sort of confronts him, and he says, well, they asked me to help shell-shocked Australian soldiers after World War I. And I did that, and I was pretty good at it, so I just kept doing it. And uh, so he's like, well, i got to fire him again, but I have to get through the coronation, so he says, we'll get through this, and then I'll can him. Now this would be like the third time he's going to fire him. And uh, he's telling them he, you know, he doesn't think he can do this. He's not fit to be king. And Lug goes up and sits in the king's chair. Now, this is like a massive breach of protocol. And the king is just totally shocked by such utter disrespect and surprises himself with this sudden outburst of outraged eloquence. 
And Logue just sits there and smiles. Upon Britain's declaration of war with Nazi Germany in 1939, once again he summons Logue to Buckingham Palace to prepare for the radio address to the nation and to the empire, to millions of listeners. And the way they do this is they put Lionel Logue and King George in a room, a radio room, all by themselves. And the king delivers his speech as if he's delivering it to Lionel Logue alone. And Logue's kind of coaching him through it. And you realize about halfway through the speech, he's no longer looking at Logue, but he's just speaking freely with no guidance and no help. And he finishes the speech and he goes out of the room and steps out on the balcony. And there's thousands of uh, folks there to applaud him. It's a masterful speech as they enter World War II. So I thought about this guy who is slow of speech and of tongue. And I thought, not unlike King George VI, Moses is about to lead his people through this tremendous trial. Moses has been enlisted by God to be his mouthpiece and the leader of his people. He's been called by God to confront the mightiest military and political power on the face of the earth. And like King George VI, Moses felt utterly inadequate and ill-equipped for the task. And so he brings his problems to God, and God gives him very unexpected answers. Before we go too far, let's stop and review for a minute where we are in Exodus. If you take your Bibles, again, look Exodus 4. We continue in our study of Moses' encounter with the living God. In Exodus 1, we saw God's sovereignty being emphasized in his dealings with the people. And in Exodus 2, we saw the introduction of Moses, the future deliverer, and he's introduced in a very favorable light, but he is unsuccessful in liberating Israel by his own efforts, and he ends up in exile. And then at the end of Exodus 2, we see the redemption of Israel is rooted in God's promises, his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you have to wonder, okay, what is God going to do to fulfill these promises he's made to Abraham. And Exodus 3 gives us the answer. You get to Exodus 3, and God reveals himself to Moses. He not only reveals himself through the burning bush, he reveals himself by his word and by his name. And so God reveals himself to Moses, tells him he cares about his people, even though they've been through uh, a lot of oppression, and he's going to make Moses the deliverer. Secondly, he reveals to Moses uh, again, he's concerned for his people. Moses will be their deliverer. But he says, it's all going to be done in order that they might worship me. And so Moses is told that the very purpose of the Exodus is so that the people of God might worship at Sinai. We're saved in order to worship. And so beginning in Exodus 3, verse 11 Moses starts a series of five questions. And the longer the questions go on, the more they actually turn into objections. And God's already appointed him as deliverer. He's told him that he, Moses, will be his spokesman to the elders, to Pharaoh, to the people of Israel. However, Moses continues to raise uh, objections about that. He's objecting to God's appointment of him as deliverer and spokesman. 
And so in Exodus 3.11, you get the first question, which is simply, who am I? You know, what makes me the person that you're going to choose to do this really important thing? And then in Exodus 3.13, he asks the second question, okay, Lord, if, if I'm your spokesman, when I go to the people, who do I say sent me? Who do I say commissioned me? And in answer to that question, God defines himself by giving Moses his covenant name, that he is the Lord, he is Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God defines himself, and it's very clear at that point in the story. From now on, God is the center of the story. Yes, Moses is the deliverer, but ultimately he's really just uh, the means that God uses. Because in the end, God himself is the deliverer of his people. And then last week, Reverend Dorse brought you to Moses' third question. Basically asked, what do I do if the people don't listen to me? And that's a real challenge. Moses knows from his own experience, the people of God were prone to be uh, very hesitant. Um, they were prone to reject you. And he'd already experienced that uh, when he was in Egypt. And the Lord very patiently answers his question and says, I'm going to give you some signs, and by these signs, you'll convince the people of God. And they do, in fact, turn out to be convincing for the people of God. We see that at the end of the chapter. But they're not convincing for Pharaoh. We'll see that later in chapter 7. And so that brings us up to date to where we are in Exodus 4, starting at verse 10. We come to Moses' fourth question, which reveals that Moses is insufficient. Insufficient, verses 10 through 12. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So as I, as I, excuse me, as I said, Moses' fourth question uh, to the Lord. It's really more of an objection than it is a question. It's basically, I'm not eloquent. You're appointing me to be a spokesman, and I'm not eloquent. I'm not suited for this. I'm not a very good speaker. He's asserting that he's not up to the task. And Moses begins to reflect the very unwillingness that he fears that Israel's going to show about his leadership. Remember, he already said back in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Lord, what if they don't listen to me? But the real question here is Moses listening to God. He's worried that Israel won't listen to him. So here, the spokesman to Israel is saying to the Lord, I'm not sure I'm really willing to do this. And you see the irony here? Moses fears that Israel won't be willing, but he himself isn't willing. As a matter of fact, this fear will come true. And we're going to see their unwillingness in the coming days. But it's even more important to notice that Moses' objection, whether it's intentional or not, is an implied criticism of God. Lord, I'm not a good speaker, and even my encounter with you hasn't helped. Look at how he says this. I've never been eloquent, neither recently or in times past. In other words, I have a good track record for eloquent speech. 
And Lord, even this encounter with you hasn't changed things. It's almost like an accusation. Lord, I've never been an eloquent speaker. And you would think, if you're going to call me to do this, at least you do a miracle here and make me a good speaker. So you have this sort of implied accusation, God, it's your fault. So we've never heard that in the scriptures before. Lord, it's this woman you gave me. We always, throughout the scriptures, see people trying to deflect the blame to God. You did this. Moses is going to do this actually about four more times in the book of Exodus. And usually along the line, it's these people that you gave me. Not that I have ever prayed that, but it's along that lines. Lays the blame on God. And you can see the sin of Moses here. The fear of Moses is real, and it just dogs him. If you were to turn forward to Exodus 6, you'll see he brings it all up again. In Exodus 6, there he says, But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Some versions translate that, since I speak with faltering lips, or I am unskilled in speech. Moses is really bothered by this. Everyone speculates as to what this is, what's behind it. There are suggestions that maybe it's a loss of his linguistic skills. Even though he'd grown up in Egypt, maybe saying, I, you know, it's been a long time. I'm not very good at speaking Egyptian anymore. Been 40 years since I've used it regularly. Even though he'd grown up speaking the language, you know, maybe he's forgotten the pronunciation or the rules of grammar or the right sounds as he's been wandering on the backside of the desert for 40 years. There have been suggestions this is a speech impediment. And I can identify with that. As most of you know, I damaged my vocal cords in the past, and I often have throat problems that make it difficult to speak. And allergies and asthma just compound that problem. And that's why I have a humidifier here and this special honey lemon tea, which actually has no tea in it, and several bottles of water and about five different throat sprays. All of which means I should probably be in some other profession that doesn't include preaching and teaching. So I don't know what the real reason is for Moses' objection here, but the point is that Moses' objection, Moses' worry, Moses' concern misses the point. It's actually a case study in missing the point. Because God hasn't chosen him because he's eloquent. Eloquence is not needed. What's needed is somebody who simply speaks the truth. The Apostle Paul recognized this in his own day. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And as you turn there, believe it or not, Paul himself, who's an apostle, is accused by the Corinthians of being fairly unimpressive when he was preaching among them. They apparently thought Apollos was a lot better preacher than Paul, and maybe he was. We don't really know. But we read in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Another version says, but in person he is unimpre unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. I can identify with that too. So Moses, uh, excuse me, God takes Moses in light of his objection. 
God takes Moses right back to the doctrine of creation, and he emphasizes his sovereignty. God is the one who gifts as he chooses. If he's called Moses, he can give Moses what Moses needs. God is certainly capable of taking into consideration everything about Moses that needs to be taken into consideration. And so notice what the Lord says, verse 11. Who has made God's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God reassures Moses by reminding him that he's the one who creates. He's the one who gives these gifts. By the way, this reminded me, do you remember when John the Baptist sent messengers to question Jesus about being the Messiah? That story is in Matthew 11. It's a wonderful uh, story there. And it says, the messengers come from John the Baptist, and they ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Just as God had assured Moses of his sovereignty and his wisdom by reminding him that he's the one who made the blind and can make them see. He's the one who made the lame and can make them walk. He's the one who made the deaf and can make them hear. And he's the one who made the mute and can make them speak. So Jesus assures John the Baptist that he is indeed divine, that he is the one whom he's looking for, saying, look what I'm doing, John, in my ministry. I am doing the deeds of God. I am the one. Back to Moses. So God is being gracious with Moses, even after these questions. He's graciously and patiently promises Moses that he'll be his mouthpiece. He'll, he'll be his teacher. He'll supply him with the right words. Look at verse 12. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Don't worry about it, Moses. I'm going to be your teleprompter. You don't have to think of anything. God is going to supply the words he needs. It's not the eloquence of Moses that he's after. And there are two things that stand out to me about these verses. The first one is simply that God uses sinful and weak vessels to accomplish his purposes. Vessels meaning people, you and me. And Moses displays the same kind of weaknesses, the same kind of unwillingness that Israel's displayed in the past and will display again in the future. And the story of God's servants in the Bible is not a story of sinless and perfect servants. You look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David. All of them, save one, are filled with faults and flaws and failings. And the Bible just lays that out in black and white, just in case you think they're some kind of superhero. You know, it just says, oh, by the way, and here's his big sins, so that everybody for the rest of time will know his big sins. Now, aren't you grateful you're not in the Bible? So that we all don't know what your big sins are. But all these guys, these were like the patriarchs. These are the big names in the Old Testament. We know all their big sins. And what that tells us is God is making it clear to us throughout the whole history of the scriptures, he's the one who's doing the saving. He's the one who's doing the redeeming. He uses all these sinful and weak people, 
but he's the one. Moses is just an instrument. It's not through Moses' courage, it's not through Moses' eloquence, it's not through any of Moses' natural abilities that the people of God are going to be saved. So even in this instance of doubt and the lack of faith, God is reminding us again that in the final analysis, it's God who saves us. Second, I think God is showing us that his message is powerful apart from the way in which it is delivered. We live in a culture where the method is the message. We care more about the way you deliver the information than the information itself. We want it snappy. We want it easy. We want it accessible. We like it with background music and maybe a video as well. You know, there's an app for that. And if there's not, we ain't paying any attention, whatever it is you have to say. God doesn't work that way. God gives us words, which in and of themselves are powerful and effective. They are his words. They are creative. They never return void. Isaiah 55, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth that shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed and the thing for which I sent it. And usually he deliberately delivers these words without any flashiness, without any eloquence. There's a few exceptions in the Bible, but they're exceptions. They're unique situations. The majority of the time, this is what God says. Believe it, do it, let me know how it works out. You know, it's, it's interesting. We're told that the Egyptian magicians were the most eloquent people in the land. And it seems here God is deliberately choosing their opposite, a particularly ineloquent spokesman, so that the message stands out more than the messenger, so that the message itself is not lost in the flowery speech or in the eloquence, but just stands out more starkly. The Apostle Paul understood this. And he understood it for all of us. You know, we already said the Corinthians didn't think so much of him as a preacher. And he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And turn there with me, 1 Corinthians 1. You know, Paul makes some pretty dramatic statements about eloquent speech there. He says, starting at verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul suggests that eloquent speech can actually empty the cross of Christ of its power, can drown it out, can garble the message. It's not to be delivered in eloquent speech. He goes on, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We jump down a few verses to verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
this hasn't changed. What was true in Moses' time and what was true in Paul's time is still true in our time. Hasn't changed. Hopefully that's not a discouragement for some of you. The, uh, you know, we're looking at Moses, this plain-spoken man, this ineloquent man. He's going to speak the truth. He's going to exalt God's sovereignty. He will rebuke man's self-centeredness. He actually will make the truth less pleasant to those who are wise in their own eyes. And he will make the truth more uh, easily understandable to those who are humble. All by choosing an ineloquent messenger. One Jewish commentator uh, on the Old Testament, some of the uh, Jewish writers have some wonderful, wonderful commentaries on the Old Testament. And uh, he writes, Whatever the circumstances of Moses in eloquence, whatever caused it, whatever Moses was referring to, whatever the circumstances, it is certain that the underlying idea is that prophetic eloquence is not a native talent, but an endowment granted for a special purpose. The message originates with God, not the prophet. Now, I often tell my students at RTS, um, where I teach, that the ones who are most naturally gifted at public speaking are the ones who have to work hardest not to get out in front of the word. I tell them, your greatest strength will become your greatest weakness. Because if you're really good at this, you think you can pull it off without God. It's not the messenger. It's not the method. It's the message. And Moses, in and of himself, reflects the weakness of God's servants and reminds us that God's word, God's message, is powerful in and of itself. And that serves to demonstrate for us that while Moses is insufficient, God is sufficient. God is sufficient. Turn to verse 13 through 17. God is sufficient. It says there, but he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. You can start to hear the whining in there. Please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, you will be, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. <coughs> so this is Moses' fifth and final question. And it really is just a flat-out objection. It's politely stated, but it's an objection. Here it is, verse 13. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And at least he says it nicely. He says, please. He knows what he's saying is totally out of order. And so he says it nicely. You know, and it sounds like he's being spiritual. Lord, send whoever you will. You know, you're reminded of the scene in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, where the voice of the Lord comes to Isaiah and says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, Here, here I am. Send me. And now in Moses' scenario, 
God's told him over and over again, you're my man. And Moses says, here I am. Send Aaron. You know, Josh K. teaches with me in the high school class, and he has a brother named Aaron. I asked him, do you ever say that? Here I am, send Aaron. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know, got the whole sibling thing going there. So, and we have it going here, too. Here I am, send Aaron. Moses just begging God. Just whatever, please send someone else. When God choosing this doubting deliverer, God is again showing himself to be the true savior of his people. It's pretty clear, pretty clear at this point, Moses isn't going to be the savior. Moses can't do it. And against this backdrop of the kind patience of God, God continues to give reasonable and helpful answers to Moses. You and I would have gotten tired of this a long time ago. God continues the dialogue. He gives them reasonable and helpful answers. And Moses has the audacity to say, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And we're told in verse 14 that God's response is a combination of anger and yet wise and gracious and patience. The Lord burns, but he gives real answers to Moses' fears. Look at two aspects to the Lord's answer. First, look at what we're told there, verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Just stop right there. The anger of the Lord. Okay, told the high school class this morning, you don't want to put this on your to-do list. Today, I'm going to tick off God. Just a bad plan. And yet that's what happens. But what does it mean? Does God have sudden bursts of, uh, and fits of rage like we do? Can we sort of keep tweaking him and pushing him a little bit too far until he blows up? Does he have an emotional life like ours? And if he does, how can he be sovereign? So I'm going to introduce a few terms uh, to you in the Bible, the Old Testament especially. There's figures of speech called anthropomorphisms. You don't have to write that down. I put it in the outline for you. And in those figures of speech, we refer to God as if God had a body like we do. We'll speak of the hand of God or the arm of God or the face of God. But it's pretty clear that those are metaphors. It's symbolic speech because the scriptures are very clear that God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like we do. And so these figures of speech uh, are used to describe things beyond the capacity of human language to describe. And then there's a category of things in the Old Testament which we call anthropopathisms. I say that slowly. Nice little word, anthropopathisms. It simply means not only are there anthropomorphisms, like the body of hu a human, but anthropopathisms, like the emotions of a human, where human emotions are ascribed to God. And what do we do with that? Is God's emotional life just like our emotional life? I've seen some of your emotional lives. I'm praying the answer is no. Some of you have seen my emotional life, and you're praying the answer is no. And the scriptures give us a very clear and definitive no. God is deeply concerned for his people. He loves his people. But his love and what we call his affections are dramatically different from our emotions 
and that it's not fickle or wavering. It's not controlled by anything outside of themselves. We react emotionally to people, to things, to circumstances, events. God's emotions are internal to himself. They're not controlled by any of those sort of outside factors. And that means this is an ascription of human emotions to God in order to express his displeasure with Moses. It indicates God's not an unmoved, unfeeling being. He's a God who deeply cares about right and wrong and about our obedience. But his divine displeasure is described as his anger was kindled. But look not only at his displeasure, look at the graciousness and the patience with which he deals with Moses. Go back to verse 14. God gives him what amounts to a very wise, gracious, patient response. Three things he does to help Moses. First, he says, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Levites are among the most educated elite in Israel. They're already the teachers in Israel. And he says, there's your brother. He's a Levite. He's a teacher. He's an educator. Secondly, he says, I know that he can speak well. Moses, there's your brother, educator, teacher, respected in the community, and he's a good speaker. He speaks well. And third, let me tell you something else you don't know, Moses. End of verse 14. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he does, he'll be glad in his heart. And so God encourages Moses, even though Moses is constantly testing his patience. And after these encouragements, look at verse 15. God gives Moses some commands, two things. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. First, speak to Aaron. Second, tell him my words. Speak to Aaron about what we've been talking about. You tell him exactly what I've told you. And after these commands, God follows with a series of encouraging statements. He says, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So first he says, I'll be with you. I'll be with your mouth, I'll be with his mouth. Second, I will personally teach you what to do and what to say. Third, and Aaron will be your spokesman to the people. You're my spokesman, Aaron will be your spokesman. And fourth, you'll tell them my words, and only then will he speak to the people. And so if you're looking at the passage, you might be wondering, where did you get that? It's right here. Look at what it says. It says, he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. That's a strange thing to say. You shall be as God to him. What in the world is God talking about? How does God deal with his prophets? God speaks, his prophets listen, and then they improvise. And they paraphrase. No, not at all. God speaks, his prophets listen, and they say exactly what God said. Thus says the word of the Lord. God literally puts the words in their mouths. Now listen to what he says. You shall be as God to him. You see, God is teaching Moses what a prophet is. And he's teaching us what a prophet is. He's saying, Moses, you're going to put my words 
into Aaron's mouth. And he's going to say exactly what I, God, have told you, Moses, to tell him, Aaron, to say. (coughs) And so even in giving him uh, Aaron, God is explaining how prophecy works. Prophecy is not according to the opinion of the prophet. Peter tells us this, 2 Peter chapter 1. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The inspiration of the prophet is not born of his own creativity. The prophet speaks God's word. He's carried along by the Holy Spirit. He speaks only that which God has given him to speak. God speaks, prophet listens, prophet says exactly what God has said. In fact, God gives us a window here to the doctrine of inspiration. Bible's revelation, it's God's revelation of himself to us in written form. The words of the prophet, they're not their reflections upon their encounter with God. There's plenty of books out there where people reflect on their encounter with God. But these are God's words, given to them to describe their encounter with God, that that they have with God, and also to serve as his word for his people. So what do we learn from these verses? Again, two things. Again, we learn that God is the one and only helper and savior of his people. He uses unwilling, doubting, flawed servants to do his bidding. God is always and ultimately our one and only helper and savior. Second, we learn as prophets are his spokesmen. Their job is merely to speak his word, to add nothing to it, to take nothing away from it, just to speak his word. That's the job of the prophet. It's speaking God's word to God's people. It doesn't matter if they like it. It doesn't matter whether or not they think it's true. It doesn't matter what or not uh, what the immediate effects of it are, what the consequences of it are. It's God's word. God speaks, then his prophet speaks. And that tells us how we're to respond to the word of God as it's read and how we're to respond to the word of God as it's preached. We're to love it. We're to see that it's God's word. It's not the opinion of man. It's God's word. It's for us. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us about God. It teaches us about the way of salvation. It teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. It teaches us the proper response to God's word, which is to worship. God is here. He's here. He's here by his word. His word's been read. He's spoken to us. His word's been explained. He's spoken to us. His word's been proclaimed. He's spoken to us. So the questions for Moses, and really the questions for us, are, are you listening? And will you obey, or will you object? Ponder that. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Thank you for these servants that you called, servants who are regular folks just like us, servants who are afraid, even doubting sometimes. Because in calling these trembling, doubting men, you showed us that you alone are our Savior. You showed us how you work in the world, giving your word, even through the mouths of sinful men, yet spoken perfectly and without error for your people. And so we pray, O oh God, that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we would respond to it as we ought, and to receive it not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And for this we give you thanks in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for